alcohol and uh, things that come to mind. Not a whole lot, no. Uh, Polish sausages? No, I don't know anything about that country. <laughs> Pierogies? Is that it? We hope it's not. That's what we're going to try to show you. Welcome to Polcast, Pole and all that jazz. Hello, I'm Małgorzata Bonikowska. And I'm Tomek Kniat. Welcome to the 22nd episode of Polcast. In this episode, we will tell you... About Ludwig the robot, constructed by a young Polish scientist and his team in Toronto to help people with Alzheimer's disease. About Poles and drinking. From stereotypes to reality. And what it's like to be a son of the renowned British historian of Poland, Professor Norman Davis. All our interlocutors in this episode are young but highly accomplished professionals, the ambitious and promising new generation with Polish roots. Remember Ivona Malinowski's School of Polish for Adults in the area of Toronto? Here is another story I heard from her students. My name is Candy. Uh, my grandfather on my mother's side was Polish, but never spoke it to us, so it was something I always wanted to learn. And now I'm married to a Polish guy, <laughs> and we're expecting our first baby. And uh, I always wanted, like even before I knew I would marry a Polish guy, I wanted to make sure that my children, as well as myself, learned Polish. Because it's like you said, you just want to connect with your heritage, and yeah, it's kind of cool. Can I ask if, if the fact that you're expecting a baby, did that make this motivation even, even stronger? Well, it was always there. I actually wanted to join Ivana's class last year, but I had just missed the first mm -hmm. semester, and I didn't want to start in term two, because then it just would have been frustrating, because there were a lot of exceptions in Polish. <laughs> 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 and whenever Ivana asks a question, I always somehow give her all the exceptions, so... <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so the baby will have a bit of Polish. Yes, they will go to Polish school, and uh, I've told my husband from day one I want him only to speak Polish, which we've talked about here as well. I'll speak English and try to speak some Polish. Um, but he still has family in Poland as well that he's very close to, so we'll go back. Actually, we were supposed to go back in September, but I'll be eight months pregnant and won't be able to travel. Uh, so eventually, you know, maybe when I'm on that leave. I am a robot being custom built to be a social partner for older adults, especially older adults with Alzheimer's disease. You have just heard Ludwig, the robot, the result of extensive research in speech recognition and artificial intelligence by Dr. Frank Rujit, a third-generation Pole from Toronto. In his early 30s, he has a doctorate in computer science and numerous publications, and is a scientist at the Toronto Rehabilitation Institute, as well as an assistant professor in the Department of Computer Science at the University of Toronto. His goal is to improve the quality of life of individuals with cognitive or physical disabilities, especially suffering from Alzheimer's disease. 
Ludwig not only talks, but interacts with people, changes his facial expressions, makes gestures, and generally looks and behaves like a little boy. Your research is really multidisciplinary, right? There's artificial intelligence, there's linguistics, psychology, computers, robotics. You have three degrees from three different universities in three different things. Have you always had such a broad vision of what you want to do in life? Oh, no, no. Things changed over time quite a bit. When I started being an undergrad, my, my goal was uh, to get a job in the technology field, and uh, and that was more or less it. Um, uh, so I went to a university. Concordia has a, a, a pretty good um, co-op program. I wanted to basically connect to industry, get a job in industry. But then when I was there, there was a really good research group uh, run by Sabine Bergler, um, and they and I also got an internship at a kind of an artificial intelligence company. And then my, my mind just expanded. This is such a great new area. Um, and at the time, I thought artificial intelligence was just going to always be science fiction. But uh, over the past 10 years or so, things have been developing so quickly. But if you were to look at all these little bricks from which your whole career and your, your outlook on, on the world is composed... Which is like number one? Is there number one? Oh, uh, I think everything's connected. There's there's no single number one thing. I think for me, I mean, maybe if there is one, there's still sort of the hope that, that in our lifetime, you know, artificial intelligence will really kind of leap to the next level in terms of our society. Um, I don't know what it's going to look like, though, but already we have a lot of, you know, there's, there's cars that can drive themselves very safely, for example. And in my field, uh, in medicine, there's a lot of evidence that computers can, at, at the very least, really augment what doctors do and clinicians and help them out and improve healthcare. A computer science in general, but in particular, artificial intelligence is now kind of coming out of the labs and con out of our little computers and starting to make a big difference in terms of everyone else's life. Your amazing achievement, of course, is Ludwig the robot. Um, and it, its purpose is, is really helping people who suffer from Alzheimer's or dementia. Why did you choose this particular group? To some extent, it's because it's it's going to be the fastest growing kind of subgroup of, of people with kind of speech language cognitive disorders in the near future. I mean, uh, it's, it's true in, in, in lots of nations now that there's going to be a lot more older adults um, over the age of 65, 70. And as that population grows, there'll be more uh, things associated with aging, including dementia. And Alzheimer's disease is sort of the biggest subcategory of dementia, um, and there aren't enough caregivers, right? So there's going to be a major kind of societal impact of Alzheimer's and other dementias. So there are not enough nurses, not enough doctors, not enough beds, not enough uh, support. Um, so I really wanted to do something that was not just for the benefit of other computer scientists. Um, we're not aiming to replace nurses or doctors or, or caregivers of any kind, but because they're already overburdened, because this is going to be such a big issue in the future, uh, we can find some way of supporting them. So in times when they're not able to communicate with these older adults, can we, can we help them uh, get status updates? Um, and to some extent also, this large group of people who will suddenly have fewer interactions with other people, fewer caregivers. We want them to live at home for as long as possible, too. Is there some way that we can support them to help to remind them to take their medicine, provide some social interaction? So one thing that Ludwig is, is going to do eventually is sort of play games with people. Right now, he basically just asks questions. Well, what are your hopes for Ludwig? Uh, well, my hope is that in a few years, um, we'll have kind of um, refined the technology to a point where it can easily be purchased and, and uh uh, I'd really like it to be um, expanded to a lot of other care facilities and retirement homes around the world. Uh, so some of the challenges that, that remain um, is really to make it robust uh, for different voices. And um, in order for it to be useful, we really want it to be flexible and to adapt to people and to understand how people feel about certain things. 
even already we've noticed that a lot of different people have different reactions to voices. So some people like a deep commanding voice, other people like a high-pitched childlike voice. Are you planning to manipulate that in one robot mm -hmm. or is this one robot going to have just one voice, his own personality? Mm -hmm. Actually, we're still figuring out what Ludwig's voice is. So his, his personality is more or less uh, like a child's personality and it's trying to, to learn um, from older adults. So older adults have a lot of wisdom that they're able to impart and we want to basically have that sort of relationship with Ludwig, but it's possible that in the next several years, the overall project might might change a little bit. Um, it's possible that um, we can still get a lot of use out of um, a robot that is not so complex. You know, um, uh, there's a lot of technology in this robot, and it, its hands can grab things. And it's possible we don't need all of that. So if we use a different um, form factor, um, we might have a different voice. Uh, we might have a different personality too. Older people seem to be people who are not that used to technology and a little resistant and maybe not that comfortable. Do you find that? How do they react to him? Some of them think it's it's a wonderful kind of uh, amusing entertainment uh, toy, you know. <laughs> some people love it and some people are, yeah, a bit, um, some people we've talked to have been a bit less, less uh, enthusiastic about it. We had another robot we worked on, which was much larger, which was about maybe four feet tall. And uh, it would basically be able to move around the home and follow people into the kitchen, for example. And people were definitely less less happy about that, especially if someone has dementia. They might forget um, what this robot is doing in their home, and suddenly there's this large thing with a deep voice telling them to follow them to the kitchen. Um, it might be a bit upsetting. So that's kind of why we, we started moving it to a smaller shape. Another kind of platform we're looking at is basically just tablets or books or even over the phone. So if someone can get a phone call and then there'd be a voice that would kind of ask them questions. How are you doing? Um, is there anything you have to talk about today? Do you have any questions? Um, that would be automatic too. Um, you are also thinking or you are planning to use uh, Ludwig as a diagnostic tool. So How reliable is is that kind of diagnosis? became very much aware that Diagnosis is something that a doctor, someone with a medical degree can do, and computer scientists are not allowed to do that. But we can aid in diagnosis, and we can sort of provide uh, assessment or providing a description or an analysis of, of somebody's speech, and we kind of make uh, predictions as to how their uh, memory is doing, how their mood is doing, and provide it to caregivers and nurses and even doctors. Um, that's been very accurate. So we had a lot of research that's been published over the past few years of just looking at someone's voice as they're describing pictures or as they're having uh, communication, the dialogue with people. And, and we've been getting very high accuracy in identifying if this person has dementia or they don't, or trying to estimate um, the scores on these assessments, you know, cutting-edge technology. So with, we're very happy with that. We've gotten getting a lot of positive support. There's um, some retirement home networks and care facilities in Ontario that have also um, are around North America that are going to be uh, piloting the technology this uh, this fall and into the future. And we have a startup company that's uh, been getting a lot of um, positive support. So some um, awards recently that we won for this technology. Yeah, it's going very well. We're super excited. And what are the biggest problems to overcome? So right now, some of our, our challenges are, are making sure this works in languages other than English. Um, so, you know, most of the data we've recorded has always been in English spoken by people, you know, who've learned English as their first language, but about half of people who live in Toronto were born somewhere else, right? Um, so we have people speaking English, but with all kinds of accents. And one thing we have to be careful of is not to mistake somebody's uh, pausing or trouble remembering a word with um, cognitive decline. If they've only learned English in the past 10 years or something, it could just be that they, they aren't as familiar with English. We don't want we don't want to make diagnosis based on, on accents. So right now we're, we're trying to collect a lot of data from other other parts of the world. Um, 
including you know Eastern Europe, uh, to see what linguistic differences there are and to use that into the platform too. We want to make sure that we can provide caregivers and doctors with the information in the in the neatest package possible. So we're working with some caregivers and nurses and, and also family members of people with dementia, being flexible and, and making sure the technology can adapt to people, their particular condition, but also their particular moods and interests. That's a key thing. You know, right now, speech technology is, is sort of coming back into popular realm now with things like Siri on your phone. Oh, yeah. But, but she's, she's still pretty generic, right? So she has a single personality. You can ask her, what is the weather? And she'll answer you. But in terms of the technology, Technology. The next frontier is really for the robot to understand, okay, this person, you know, she likes this kind of music, she likes these kinds of topics, she likes talking about her family, so I'm going to ask more questions about that. Or she doesn't understand me when I say complicated sentences, so I'm going to use shorter sentences. But definitely your next few years um, are going to be devoted to Ludwig and to making him better. Is that what you're planning to do? Yeah, I hope so. I think my, my, my lab here at, at the hospital and the university is growing and uh, we have lots of projects. Ludwig is, the technology has gotten to a point where um, we want to make it a focus, uh, but it won't be the only thing we do. To learn more about Frank Rujit and Ludwig and to share your comments, please visit our website at mypolcast.com. When we spoke to Ariel Heitz Bialski, the young composer, DJ from Toronto who now lives and works in Warsaw, he shared with us some interesting and somewhat surprising impressions from Poland. There's the stereotype that Poles drink so much. Truthfully, I've came to the observation that things have changed. I don't see as much um, drunks on the street. I remember as a kid, I would even see drunk guys on the street. There's more homeless people in Toronto than there are drunks on the street in Warsaw. When I go out and the group of friends I'm around and also when DJing, sure, people drink, but there I have lots of friends who are just like, oh, no, I'm okay. Like after, hey, do you want a shot? No, 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 it's fine. I find the, the drinking culture has definitely changed. It's not like it used to be. I don't see people getting like wasted as I remember polls used to. Also, I think there is like... I haven't seen much, although I'm sure there is, just like any culture, if you, you're very young and you start drinking, you'll drink wrong and you'll throw up and all that stuff. But like, I don't see that as much here as I did in Toronto. It allows for great parties and longer parties and therefore people pacing themselves with alcohol. And Christian Davis is in his late 20s, but he's already a well-known journalist who has published in the British Guardian, and his essays on Poland have been translated and published in Poland. He studied history and international relations in Britain, and is now working as a writer and journalist based between the UK and Poland. Born in California, raised in Oxford, he has a Polish mother and a British father. The famous historian Professor Norman Davis the leading British expert on Poland, author of groundbreaking books. We reach Christian in Oxford. Let's talk a little bit about your dad. Did you talk a lot all your life when you were growing up about history, about what he does? I mean, the first thing to say, anyone you speak to who has a well-known parent will tell you that first and foremost, you don't see them that way. They're just your father or mother. But obviously, you um, you are aware of it, particularly in Poland. In terms of growing up speaking about Poland, not that much, actually. I mean, yeah, occasionally, very often we'd get a history lecture over dinner, although he likes to joke that now I'm the one lecturing everyone at dinner. You know, he 
he did it until I was uh, maybe a postgraduate and then the, kind of the roles reversed. But I grew up in a family that cares and thinks and talks about Poland all the time, not necessarily about just Polish history, but it, it's always there. And I think anyone who knows our family knows that if my parents are, at, are over for dinner or something, you know, Poland will come up. They don't even know they're doing it. But I wouldn't say it was my father giving us giving me lectures. It was more the family talking about stuff. Did you always have Polish people around? Yes. Even in England? Yes. I mean, there's always... Polish friends passing through. Uh, we knew most of the uh, Polish families, particularly the ones with their children our age, and many of whom I'm, I'm, I'm sitting in touch with. We had a lot of contact with it, but a very little um, sort of institutional contact, I would say. What did he teach you? The most important things that he taught you? And I don't mean about history, I mean about life. Yeah, I, I think that's an important distinction that you make. He's he's had a very big uh, influence over my personality, my temperament, but, um, you know, he didn't he didn't bring me up uh, tutoring me in Polish history. And like I said, I didn't grow up particularly interested. I wasn't uninterested, but I only read his uh, his books and well into my 20s. I never read them growing up. Maybe some contrarianism um, and maybe a slightly subversive attitude to things sometimes. I mean, by which I don't mean subversive in a sort of politically dangerous way. I mean, like when I was a very small child, he was writing Europe a History, which is, you know, this, this huge, great book of 1500 pages or something. And he was upstairs writing it, um, getting up at six in the morning, was writing it until the evening every single day. And even though he was in the house every day as a small child, I didn't see him that much, you know, because he was always working. And at one point I went, I remember I went upstairs And I wanted to play football with him or, you know, I wanted him to uh, spend some time with me. And he, he had a deadline, whatever. He couldn't stop. So he said, "Okay, well, let's write this together. And um, he, he was editing something on a word processor. And he said, why don't you just put something in uh, in the text and we'll see. We'll see what happens to it. And I said, I, well, I don't know. And uh, I think there must have been some kind of uh, picture of a black cat. I can't remember what it was. There was something about a, a, a black cat came up and so in a, in the middle of a, a random sentence we just put the the two words black cat and it and it doesn't fit in the sentence at all i mean to, syntactically you know it doesn't it doesn't flow in any way it's just something 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 black cat something 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 and it got through and it's still in the still in you the book you mean the proofreader never knows no, no yeah it never it got through it's, i think we got a we got a letter from tony blair who was the, after it was published who was the prime minister then saying you know i've got my son to look for the black cat and so on and it was a It became the it became this thing, so I guess that, that sort of slightly um, maybe mischievous thing, maybe um, uh, not taking things too seriously, <laughs> but little things like that. That's what that's what I remember. Not you know a lecture on Pilsudski. Actually, the, the best lessons I got were the were the best lessons that that he got. A uh, good example is when uh, he went uh, to Oxford University in the late 50s. His first tutorial as a, as a history student, he was given a reading list and he had to do an essay on something on medieval history. He'd never done any medieval history. And uh, it's a long reading list. He went away, uh, read all these books and then uh, wrote this essay on the basis of these these books. And then uh, at Oxford, what you what you do is you submit the essay and then you have a tutorial to discuss it with the, with the tutor. So he goes for this tutorial to discuss his first essay. And um, the tutor says, I'm afraid your, your essay is just completely wrong. And he said, but But I'm sorry, I don't know any medieval history, and this is this is purely on based on the reading list you gave me. Uh, and he said exactly. So don't believe what everything that you read in books. <laughs> the other very similar thing, 
um, was when he was doing, uh, he was either doing his PhD or he was writing White Eagle Red Star about the 1920 uh, War of the Bolsheviks. He spent, I think, months going through the Foreign Office archive uh, on uh, Britain's diplomatic policy towards Poland. And uh, his tutor, I think it may have been the same tutor, actually, that probably that probably would make would make sense. It's A.J.P. A. Taylor, who's a great British historian, said, you do realize that the um, the prime minister at that time didn't pay any notice to the Foreign Office. And actually, he ran his own operation within Downing Street. And, the, and those documents are totally useless. The, the Foreign Office continued with its work, produced all this material. The Prime Minister didn't pay any attention to it because he was running his own parallel operation. So little things like that that induce a kind of scepticism and maybe a slightly subversive way of looking at it in the sense that I've always, like any historian or trained in history, you're always looking to upturn the conventional wisdom, whether or not I'm any good at that, I don't know. But I, when other people do it, that's what, I, that's what I love. As a historian, do you disagree with your father on something um, substantial? <laughs> And I mean history. Uh, well, first of all, I'm not a historian. I've got a degree in, uh, in history. I'm a big fan of Timothy Snyder's books on, uh, on Polish history. I, I, actually, uh, I re-entered my interest in Polish history through Timothy Snyder and then back through my father's work. I wouldn't say I disagree because I don't feel qualified to have an opinion that's that's strong enough. I've just been in Israel interviewing a veteran from the Home Army who uh, was in the Kediv, elite unit of the Home Army, diversion, sabotage, and so on. Polish Jewish guy from Łódź uh, who lost his family in the Holocaust and then was recruited into the Home Army and was in this elite unit and participated in the uprising. He is very adamant, as are quite a few other people, that the, the uprising was, was a terrible, disastrous mistake. I mean, it was that it was criminal in the sense that it was criminally irresponsible and that this, this is not something to be celebrated at all. Not that the sacrifice or the participation of people um, should not be celebrated, but the... the that the decision should not be celebrated, that uh, hundreds of thousands of people died unnecessarily, and not just in fighting, I mean, in reprisals against civilians in, you know, in incredibly brutal ways. I mean, you know, system, systematic rape and, and mass slaughter and, and sort of sadistic torture and, and killing and so on, um, that it destroyed the Polish underground, which meant that it, it couldn't properly resist the Soviets when they, when they came in. A number of people have expressed this view to me, but the, the reason it's significant coming from him is that he was part of it. You know, he was a big fan of my father's books. But the thing he couldn't understand is why my father didn't criticize the uprising more strongly, why he didn't come out against it. As I understand it, my father's view is that it would have felt one way from from the ground. But it's important to understand the environment, the psychological, the political, the diplomatic environment in which the people who made decisions can, whether it turned out to be the wrong one or the right one, that it's probably not the right thing uh, thing to judge. I'm a strong believer in not trying not to, and sometimes it's, it's unavoidable, but trying not to judge people, particularly in very difficult uh, circumstances. And, and Polish history is full of people in terrible circumstances. Polish society and Polish discourse is also full of people quite unfairly casting judgment and aspersions on people uh, who are in situations that they, they don't understand. I suppose my gut reaction is, yes, this was a terrible mistake. It should have been obvious that the Soviets were not going to help. Why would they? They had been locking up and arresting and killing Home Army leaders for months leading up to it. Um, it was clearly in their interest to allow their, their two principal enemies, the Nazis and the Polish resistance to 
kill each other. So I suppose maybe I would t- I would take a maybe a harsher stance on the decision than my father would. I mean, you ask you ask me as a historian. I've always been interested in history one stage removed, in the sense that. Uh, I've never wanted to be a historian, an academic historian. I'm very interested in the echoes of history, how it, how it comes out in contemporary politics, how people remember it or misremember it, how it affects people, how it affects the way they, they see the world. I, I, I suppose that's why I was so drawn to the work of Timothy Snyder, because he's a historian of ideas. Um, I suppose I'm more interested in the debate about the uprising as opposed to the uprising itself. You know, I'm interested in why some people think it was a bad idea, why others think it was a good idea, and how those two worldviews affect how they see other things. I like to let historians do the best job they can and then try and interpret that. To learn more about the father and son, about Christian's work, and to leave your comments, please visit our website at mypolcast.com. In the last episode, we played this sound, wondering if you can guess what it is and where in Poland you can hear it. cell phones were invented, there were walkie-talkies. But even before walkie-talkies, there were trumpet signals. The most well-known is the Reveille, still commonly used in the United States Army. The tradition of trumpet signals like the one you just heard, is continued in Poland not by the army, but by hunters. There are over 30 different melodies, called calls, for many hunting occasions. To mark the beginning and the end of the hunt, to communicate, and to coordinate it. And, of course, to celebrate, if there is anything to celebrate. Well, if there isn't, there's always the hunting trip itself and the company that deserve the trumpet call. It's time for our next sound from Poland. Here it is. Listen, think, guess. Where do you need to be in Poland in order to hear this sound? And what is it? You've been listening to the 22nd episode of Polcast. Polcast is created, recorded and produced in Toronto by... Małgorzata Bonikowska and Tomek Kniat. For full-length interviews, visuals and a lot of additional information, please visit our website at mypolcast.com. 
We are always curious about your reactions, comments and suggestions. Also ideas for the news stories. Please share them with us on our website, mypodcast.com. In the next episode, we will tell you what it's like to grow up in a family haunted by trauma, a book by a Polish-American writer. How Poles built Hollywood, as documented and described by a Polish-American filmmaker in his two books. And we leave you today with another famous piece of Chopin music, Polonaise in A-flat major. Thank you for listening.